Welcome to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron. This is a weekly investing podcast where I chat with my friend Tony. Tony's a very successful investor. He's been doing it for about 30 years. His returns on average are about double the market over that period of time. And he's able to get those returns because he developed a system of value investing that we call QAV, quality at value. How do you find good quality companies and how do you buy them at a discount to their intrinsic value? It's basically a scoring system. We look at the fundamentals of the companies and that's what we teach our club members. Uh, In terms of the podcast, we have a free episode each week, goes for about half an hour. That's what you're listening to now. We have a longer episode, usually goes for an hour to an hour and a half. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Anyway, let's get into this week's show. Welcome back to QAV, Tony Canaston. It's uh, episode 705. We're recording this Tuesday, the 30th of January, 2024. How are you, TK? Good. Cameroon, really? Really good. <laughs> uh, have you done that thing? Like, I've been uh, writing memos and signing things with last year's date still, twenty, like 24th of the first 23. Took, no. took me a few few days for the brain to click over that it actually was 2024. You know why I don't do that is because I never actually write the date. I have code... If I'm writing something, I just write date and then an asterisk and it just inserts the date. Yeah, but something you have to sign and put then date, right? Legal documents. Legal documents? Like what legal documents do you think I'm signing? <laughs> <laughs> I had to sign a consent for surgery to gel the horse recently and I put 2023 in it. Right. And I had to sign a proxy because yeah. I, I don't live at Cape Shank. I had to sign a proxy for the AGM down there. I didn't have to, but I wanted to, to give right. the give the chair a vote and got it sent back to me and said, uh, this is for last year. <laughs> 23. <laughs> you know, I don't do anything apart from sit here and record podcasts and go to Kung Fu. That's my entire life. Nothing. Ah, living the sign. dream. Le- living the legal dream. Documents. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of living the dream, Tony, the market, you know, it's well, at the end of last year, the end of December, it was like going all guns. The beginning of this year, beginning of January, it, it fell in a heap for the first couple of weeks. Now it's back, but it all all up since the well, almost since when? Like the eighteenth of January, just can't get enough of it. Markets just going gangbusters, one minute down, the next minute up. Pretty hard to predict, isn't it? Pretty hard to care about too. Really, it's like <laughs> exactly. It's you you know, the, the only reason I care is I, I read the fin, I look at the fin in the morning. If it says the market's going to be up, I'm like, all right, well, I don't need to think about anything today. If it says it's <laughs> going to be a rough day, I think uh, I may need to check the alerts more rigorously than I would otherwise. But generally speaking, which I haven't actually even checked my alerts today, I probably should do that. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it's all been fairly smooth running. For the last week, a couple of the stocks in our portfolios are close to their sell lines. I think McMahon, McMahon is struggling a little bit. It's around a three PTL and our rule one. And um, what's the other one? There's another one that's been sort of hovering around there for the last couple of days. 
but I've kind of just been letting them hover, trying not to think too hard about it, seeing where <laughs> they go. Because they've been doing it for like a, a week, you know, they'll sort of hover yeah. around that line and they'll dip below it, but then they'll go back above it. There seems to be like a, it's a support line in there for somebody. Um, let's see, oh, Gem is the other one that's sort of hovering around a real one cell for us. But anyway, yeah. Well, the other thing that's happening too now is we're getting, oh, well, quarterly updates from the mining sector, but, um, you know, Woolworths came out today, for example, and had to confess that they're going to take a write-down in their annual results, which they'll present probably next month. So there's going to be some movements in stocks over the next six weeks or so with um, mm. annual results coming out. So reporting season starts in a couple of days. Mm. Uh, so be aware of that. Um, and if I, I know I don't like to predict things, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Credit Corp will report early and they'll under-promise and the shares will go down. Well, we talked about this six months ago, I seem to recall, or a little bit after their last results, and I asked the question, should we sell before they report next time? Yeah. <laughs> and you said, yeah, maybe we should, because, yeah, yeah I'll look, look at their chart for the last year. Well, September was really bad. September, they really plunged a lot. They dropped down to 12 bucks. They were trading, like at the beginning, middle of September, they were trading at 21 bucks. By the middle of October, they were down to 12, from 21 down to 12. They're back up to nearly 18 bucks, 17.73. You know, is it part of the QA fee system to uh, just go, well, (laughs) CCP's going to. That's a side job. It's a side deal. It's It's a hustle. Yeah. It's a hustle. It's going to take a hit. We might as well sell it now and buy it again in a month when everyone goes, oh, well, they're fine. Actually, wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, should we? <laughs> Are you serious? Preempt? <laughs> I'm serious. <hey. laughs> no, you're, you're laughing it off. You don't think so? Well, I mean, like I said, it's a prediction, so it may not happen this year, but it seems to happen all the time. <laughs> We've been doing this show for five years, and you tell me every, you've been telling me for five years that's what CCP does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I won't, I won't do it then. Oh, we'll see how that plays out. Munger's final portfolio. I thought this was an interesting story in Business Insider. The late Charlie Munger's final stock portfolio update is out, and it shows his iconic approach to investing. Uh, says Charlie Munger grew Daily Journal's stock portfolio from nothing to $300 million within 15 years. The newspaper publisher just filed its final portfolio update from the legendary investor's time in charge. And it underlines Munger's exceptional patience, discipline, and conviction. It uh, goes on to say, skimming through it, la di da di da. Their first portfolio filing for Daily Journal dates back to the fourth quarter of 2013, likely because that's when the value of its holdings breached the $100 million reporting threshold. The publisher and legal software provider disclosed 2.3 million shares of Bank of America. Almost 1.6 million shares of Wells Fargo, 140,000 shares of US Bank Corp, and 64,600 shares of South Korean steelmaker POSCO. Remarkably, Daily Journal held the exact same amount of Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and US Bank Corp shares a decade later on December 30th last year, while it slashed its POSCO position 
to 9,745 shares in the fourth quarter of 2014. It didn't touch it again until the fourth quarter of 2022 when it exited the holding. Munger made only one other big change to Daily Journal's portfolio. He bet on Alibaba at the start of 2021, quadrupled his wager by the end of the year, then halved it the next quarter after souring on the Chinese e-commerce titan and deciding he'd made a mistake, possibly when the Chinese government made the founder of Alibaba disappear, Jack Ma, mm. <laughs> for a year. Those magicians. <laughs> he went into the gulag for a year for mouthing <laughs> off about the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> Abracadabra, Alibaba, disappeared. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. It's worth noting that Munger's hands-off approach wasn't a winner across the board. The value of Daily Journal's Wells Fargo and US Bancorp positions rose by less than 10% in a decade, while the S&P 500 surged over 150% in the t- same time frame. The company's Bank of America stake did better, rising by almost 120% in that period. Munger's record appears to have been saved by an early bet on Chinese EV maker BYD. The wager likely made up the lion's share of Daily Journal's $138 million in unrealised gains on September 30 and allowed it to realise a 15-fold return on a $3.3 million wager in late 2021. Even so, Daily Journal's filings underscore Munger's commitment to making concentrated bets, buying for the long term and only at a compelling price, rarely selling and resisting the urge to fiddle or panic. What do you think about all that, TK? No, oh, I think, you know, I've actually got a tear in my eye when I read it because it's just such a shame that Charlie's no longer with us to, to just learn from the master even more. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's a great story. Um, I know that there were other, other stories and people out there who said that they would prefer to go to the Daily Mail AGM and listen to Charlie speak than the Berkshire Hathaway AGM because um, he just would sit there for eight hours and answer, answer any questions people threw at him. Um, which I guess he did at the Berkshire Hathaway AGM too, but there was less people at Daily Mail. Um, yeah, so somewhere else in the article, he he said that the Daily Mail had a maximum number of shares of, of eight, I think, at any one time. You wouldn't let the portfolio get above eight. Um, Daily, and my, Daily Journal, I think, Tony. Not Daily, Daily Journal, Mail. sorry, not Daily Mail. I should, I should get that right. They're very different. <laughs> Daily Journal. Um, and, and I think, as you read out, there's probably only really about four or five long-term in the portfolio. Um, mm. So it's interesting that BYD was the one that really saved the bacon. I mean, you take BYD out and the rest underperformed the index. So that's interesting in itself. And uh, and Charlie has spoken about why he bought BYD. He just saw so much uptide, upside potential in it, but it's hardly what you'd normally expect as a value investment or, or the kind of stock a value investor would buy. So that was an interesting mm. one, I think. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, interesting that like it didn't really the rest of the portfolio didn't perform well. So even no. Charlie, with his great genius and taking long term bets and sticking mm-hmm. in there, um, you know, one out of the five there really seemed to do well. Which is mm. not unexpected, is it really? It's just that's what normally happens in the portfolio. Mm. Um but it's interesting. It's it's a small. I think the learnings for me are it's a small concentrated portfolio. He mm-hmm. didn't tinker with it much, and and I I wonder whether his non tinkering was the fact that he had so many other things to look at that five shares in the 
daily journals portfolio didn't, you know, wasn't top of mind for him very much, but mm. but he doesn't probably think it with things anyway. Um, his theory was fine on the other other four, uh, Bank of America and uh, Wells Fargo, et cetera. He bought those during the depth of the GFC and uh, they looked really good in the early days because they all went up a lot and he, he possibly even hung on to them for too long because they've gone back to being below index uh, over the last, what, 15 years since then. So, yeah, um, perhaps he made a mistake. But it's classic Charlie. He he pretty much did everything right. And um, even the Alibaba excursion, I mean, that's interesting in itself as well. He, he got very bullish on China a couple of years ago, bought Alibaba and then doubled down and then sold it again. So uh, he's he was... It's kind of like some, you know, sometimes where I get to with QAV in the Australian market that I can't find things big enough to buy on our buy list. Um, and I think Charlie probably had that problem as well. So they were looking overseas. Mm. Um, and I think also, too, as their, as their fame spread, they were getting lots of pitches from overseas fund managers and investors and brokers to look at these companies. So they were, they were exposed a lot more to them because um, there's a lot more overseas companies now in Berkshire Hathaway than there was 20 years ago, for example. Mm. Mm. All right, moving right along. Morgan Housel, 101 Little Ideas. Didn't do one last week. This week, I've got two. They're, they they fit together, though. The first one is base rates. The success rate of everyone who's done what you're about to try. Then the next one is base rate neglect. Assuming the success rate of everyone who's done what you're about to try doesn't apply to you, <laughs> caused by overestimating the extent to which you do things differently than everyone else. <laughs> That's like the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? A little bit. A little yeah. bit, yeah. I, I mean, I, I come across this all the time, and it, um, it's why I always emphasise, you know, if you're getting into the share market, um, work out what kind of investor you are, dip your toes in, um, have a paper portfolio, have your framework set, and then once you've trialled it for a while, then start to invest. Don't don't mm. just jump in and lose money. That's the worst thing you can mm. do. Mm. But yeah, I mean, yeah. like uh, you see it a lot with share investors. Oh, I bought Bitcoin at twenty thousand, and now it's forty thousand. It's I'm a genius. It's like no, you were just lucky. You were just around with money in your pocket at the right time. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, it's a great. A great uh, concept, base rates and base rates neglect. And I also I remember in the dot-com boom, like we would sit around over coffee and barbecues and things, me and my mates, and think, oh, we can't miss out on this boom. How are we going to set up a dot-com company? And we'd have all these great ideas. And then I'm like, do we really know about this? How do we how do we actually add value to this process? And they'd be like, oh, stop it. You're just a bloody killjoy. Let's get mm. into it. <laughs> mm. oh, whereas I actually did start a dot-com company. Twice, <laughs> thinking that I would uh, be smarter than the average cookie, and you know, I know what I know what business success rates are mm. normally, even outside of dot coms. Mm. You know, classically, fifty percent of businesses that get started don't small businesses don't survive the first year, and 90 percent of those that do survive the first year don't survive the next four years. So, five years, the failure rate is extremely high. Dot-com businesses is probably even higher than that. But it reminds me of when Hunter, my son, said he wanted to become an actor. And I was like, you know, you realize what the success rate of 
people who do that is yes, yeah, but you know, they're all idiots. You know? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, though, he, you know, the boys are in LA at the moment. Yeah. Hunter's Hunter's going to New York. He got an invitation to fly to he's being flown to New York, put up at a hotel, and he's going to the Tommy Hilfiger event at Fashion Week in New York. He has to get there a day early because they have a stylist who's going to fit him out with Tommy Hilfiger gear for the sort of the red carpet event because you have to be styled to be on the red carpet apparently. So I'm like, I don't know, as long as you're prepared to sleep with yeah. someone there afterwards, yeah. it could uh-huh. be the big break for you. You know, Who knows? <laughs> good. good on him. Well, good luck. Yeah. He could, you know, just stumble his way to success but so i mean i i think in all of those things there's a certain amount of talent involved in that industry but 99.9 percent of it is luck and luck. timing i think yeah, yeah. luck and timing but and just, has to happen just to someone. Up. oh no absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah but like yeah as we spoke about before there's a there's often in most industries there's a pyramid and we only hear about the people at the top Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the sporting salaries, same sort of thing. Someone just made, made three million bucks winning the Australian Open last week, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's someone oh, I remember meeting. I think it was the last person, the last Australian to win the Australian Open. Had a, had a few beers with him and really enjoyed his company. And uh, Mark Edmondson, and uh, this was going back in the mid '90s when I um, was I was uh, at an IBM event. It was actually the Australian Pro Am tennis and played tennis with him. And um, and then I, like afterwards, we're having a few beers, and I said, um, "So what are you up to these days?" And he goes, "Oh, just finished laying the concrete on a on a tennis court." So he was reduced. Like this is the Australian sporting champion. Um, I think the last Australian to win the Australian Open, and he's twenty years ago. He's he's <laughs> laying concrete on tennis courts to make a living. So mm. yeah, the the pyramid yeah. has a very steep, slippery slope. It's like the Johnny Farnham, John Farnham story, right? After his first splash of success in the late 60s, early 70s, by by the time Glenn, what's his face? Wheatley. Wheatley Wheatley started working with him in the mid-80s. He was, yeah, building houses, I think. He was like a plasterer or something like that. He was, you know, uh, tradie on the tools. Back before that was the quick way to get rich in Australia was being a tradie. You know, he was just... Doing tradey stuff. Yeah. Well, Tom Baker, when he heard that he'd won the part for Doctor Who, was on a building site. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he hadn't been successful and then failed. He was still right. working his way up. You know, Farnham had had success. Mm. He was like top of the pops, the king of <laughs> top of the pops in the- Lady, the like, cleaning lady. or something. Yeah, yeah that's right. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. I've got a pulled right. pork to do if you want to do that now. Oh, lovely. Yes. Pulled pork. What are you doing? Is this the request? Yeah. No, I'll do that next week. Oh, okay. Sorry. Hang on. Can you hear that? Yeah. No, what? Oh, I had a clicking noise here. I think I may have just rested something on the keyboard. Sorry. No, no, I can't hear it. You couldn't hear it? Good. Um, yeah, so I'll do the request next week. I didn't. I actually got up this morning and did this pulled pork while I was waiting for the notes to come through. So, um, And I don't normally look at the the buy list when Alex downloads it and say, oh, I should look at that one in more detail because there's very rarely something new that has a large ADT. But but this week, Telstra came onto the buy list. So I'll do a pulled pork on Telstra. Wow, we very- haven't done one of those, I think, since the beginning of QAV. It was one we did in like 2000 and whenever it was. 19. Did we? I didn't think I'd done Telstra. 
Well, not we weren't doing pulled porks back then, but back then okay. when we started, we were taking a stock each week and breaking it down and looking at its numbers. And TLS was one of the first stocks that uh, we ever really analyzed when I was building my checklist based on trying to understand the gibberish oh, that you were talking that's about. Right. So. <laughs> That's right. It's like episode episode three or four, I think, of the first season we did TLS. Yeah, I think we were using well, Telstra as an example of how to find stock doctor data manually, wasn't it? I think that was part of it. Yeah, looking at yeah. Yahoo Finance and doing all that kind mm. of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Right. Anyway, That's so Telstra is back on the buy list. It's the very bottom of the buy list, so you may not be there for long. So do your own research. Uh, and and look, I've got to say, I'm Telstra is one of those companies I'm very ambivalent towards, and. I don't mean indifferent. I mean the dictionary definition of ambivalence. I love it and I hate it. And and doing this pulled pork just brought out all those emotions in me again because Telstra is really two businesses. And a couple of years ago, they actually separated them into separate companies under a holding company, Telstra Group. Um, and the market got excited because they thought they were going to spin off the infrastructure business, Telstra Infrastructure. And that's the part I love. I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking on, on Zoom and we'll put out a podcast on people's phones that they can listen to. And it's all done over the backbone of all the telco infrastructure in Australia that, you know, has been around for a long time. And Telstra pretty much owns and manages most, most of that, if not almost all of it. I mean, Vodafone and Optus will have a bit, but nowhere near as much as Telstra has. Isn't and, it NBN? Isn't it Kevin Rudd's uh, home home network? Yeah, well, NBN's in there now too. I think didn't it get sold back to Telstra a year or two ago? I think. I don't know. I haven't followed it. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure. But NBN aside, the rest, like the undersea cables, some satellites, all the data centers, the switches, um, all that kind of stuff. It's all it's all Telstra, and and that's the side I love. I mean that that just gets on with doing it. Um, there's very rarely an outage. Occasionally, there's an outage, um, but we rely on it all the time. To me, that's a good business. Then you got the other side, which is like the retail arm, which whenever I engage in them, they are just the worst retailers ever. Uh, I think I spoke years ago about when I came back to Australia and tried to set up my home phone and my home phone at Cape Shank and just spent days in in mm. call in call centre waiting queues to try and sort out the most basic of situations. And don't don't even I, I don't even know or try to guess what's the best mobile service plan for me to be on. It's just all too complicated. So it's that's the side of Telstra I hate. And interestingly, interestingly enough, and going through some of their more recent uh, announcements, they, they want to make custom, the customer experience part of their growth plans. And I, I, that wouldn't be hard to do because they're coming off a very low base, but they've got to do a lot better than what they... I mean, go to a Telstra store. Last time I went to a Telstra store, mm. there was no one in it and I got mm. told to take a number and come back in half an hour when, when mm. it would be my turn. I'm like, there's mm. no one, there's no one mm. here. <laughs> Walk straight into the Optus shop. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually have TPG here now because I got so pissed off with using trying to get onto Telstra. So anyway, that's the side I hate. Um, I mean, Telstra has a great storied history. It's 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 basically a government business that was floated and, under John Howard. Um, in two tranches. But before that, you know, it goes right back to the early 1900s, 1901, I think, when the telegraph lines and the telegrams were all put under the the auspices of the Postmaster General. So for a long time, Telstra was called PNG. And then 
around about the time of World War II, Australia started to realise it needed to have reliable communications with the rest of the world and uh, dropped a few undersea cables. And that became, I think, OTC, Overseas Telecommunications Company. And then a bit after that, they were combined, became Telecom, and then floated and became Telstra. And then just recently had this kind of internal demerger, and it's now Telstra Group. So it's been around for a long time, um, long, long history. Like I said, one one side, the infrastructure side, um, is a is a good business, and it's growing too because the use of data just keeps keeps on growing as things become more and more digitized. Um, I did have a laugh when they were talking about um, uh, increasing their satellite business. And I, I thought about the fact that I couldn't get that at Cape Shank, which was the only place I needed it. So I got um, Elon Musk satellite instead. So they've they still got a long way to go with their customer service. Um, mm. What else can I say about them? Australia's largest telco, obviously. Uh, latest Investor Day update called out customer experience, 5G and satellite is their growth areas. And I, I just put a question mark against those three things because I don't think they do any of those things well. So, uh, well, I, I, I shouldn't say they don't do 5G well. It's it's a growing part of their business. But I remember all the hype on around 5G when it came out. And we I think we had it in Canada slightly ahead of Australia. And, and I had a SIM card that could convert from 3 or 4G to 5G. And I'm like, there's no difference. And I still, I still can't name any benefit from five G, you know, that we that we get compared to what we used to have. Really, um, it's it's either all happened seamlessly, or um, or it's all been a lot of hype. But um, but yeah, so not sure about five G. Um, Your download infraco- speeds on five G are massively higher than four G. If you're if you've got a good signal, like I get two hundred megabits a second download on 5G, which I never would have got on 4G, but don't know if you ever try and download or upload anything that big from your phone to care about. It's not like you're you're not streaming video on your phone. I mean, things like if you're taking a FaceTime call or something like that when you're on Mm -hmm. a walk and you're away from your Wi-Fi in the house, that's where 5G comes into play really. But if you're not doing that, if you're just Reading the ABC or the Fin Review mm. on your phone, yeah, you don't really need the five G. It's I read them on my phone. I read them on my laptop. <laughs> yeah, so if you're not yeah. using your phone for high yeah. bandwidth applications, it, but I think for you know people with jobs uh, <laughs> who are out and about, you know, doing stuff on their iPads okay. and their iPhones and running corporate apps, CRM apps, ERP apps, Salesforce, all that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of data probably is a good thing. Okay. I'm just here, well, like I hate Telstra with a passion, and I'll tell you why <laughs> at the end of this, but I get as 5G is good. I'm not going okay. to let you shit talk 5G on my watch. Well, it's, I'm, I'm not shit I'm not shit talking it. I just I just thought it was tremendous hype that I haven't seen much benefit from, but I defer to your experience. Uh, okay, That'll so... Be- <laughs> That'll be the only time that ever happens. <laughs> yeah. What else can I say? So that, that, some of the things which I found interesting, which which were also in their investor day briefing, um, they are calling out uh, growth areas being data centers, which makes sense. Um, growth in fiber, which might be NBM related, I'm not sure, and security. So 
they, I think they probably are legitimate growth, you know, growth centers for them. Um, probably going back to your 5G comments, the mobile business is seeing 30% growth in data usage. So um, that's year on year, which is which is quite tremendous for them. Anyway, I think there's no point going into Telstra in any more detail. Most people have used them or not used them or loved them or been pissed off by them over the years. And it's, you know, the funny thing is it's not just Telstra. When I was in Canada, Rogers was the big telco player and everyone just hated, loved to hate Rogers. I had a friend whose husband got a job working for Rogers and she just said, before you say anything, it's just a job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, she just had to keep defending herself. Um, Anyway, look at the numbers. And this is where it gets um, interesting because it's a very large company. I, I think it would be a difficult company to run. It's it's quite possible that splitting it and, and floating off infrastructure, you know, Telstra, um, Infraco would be a good thing. Um, I think those, but Telstra never came out and said they were doing that, and they're certainly not saying it now. But it might happen in the future, and things are being set up so it can happen. But just the span of all everything they do must be, you know, hell on earth for a CEO to try and. Mm. manage all the the fires and the risks and all those different areas. Um, And maybe a bit of focus would come if it was split up. But anyway, um, we don't have to worry about ADT because it's uh, over, it's nearly $71 million a day. So it's a very highly traded stock on the ASX. I'm doing the analysis of the share price of $4, which is less than consensus target. The yield, Telstra Telstra for a long time has been um, considered to be, as I said, once before, a bond proxy. So, uh, you know, something that has bond-like characteristics. It's a very stable share price. It's probably traded in the 3 to $4 type range for the last five years, um, and it pays a decent yield. But I think these days with interest rates high, um, the yield isn't enough. So the yield at the moment is 4.25%, um, but it needs to have a yield of 6.8% to score on our checklist. Uh, and I, I guess it begs the question, if this is a kind of bond, um, then if you can get those kinds of rates from putting your money in the bank, why do you take any sort of risk on and dealing with, on, on you know, Telstra stuffing things up and the share price going down? So I think it's, that may lead to them raising their interest rate or their dividend, sorry, yield at some stage. We'll wait and see on that one. Stock Doctor actually rate them as a star income stock, which we give half a point for in our checklist. But I think, you know, if I was a retiree and I can get the same sort of yield with less risk, I don't think I'd be buying Telstra. I'd probably just buy an index fund, which has a similar sort of yield anyway. Um, Stock Doctor financial health is strong and steady, so that's all good. Uh, Prop cap for this is just under our cutoff of seven. It's 6.79 times. Um, ROE is okay. Even though we don't use it to score with, I'll just call it out for listeners. It's 11.3%, which is on the low side, I guess, but it is a big company with lots of um, assets. Uh, net equity per share is $1.54. Um, so share price at $4. We can't buy this for anything like the book value. Um, earnings per share growth is 10%, which again isn't bad for a company the size of Telstra, but it doesn't. it's not enough to score for our uh, earnings per share over PE score. Uh, obviously, no owner founder. It's been around for too long, and the current board doesn't have any large shareholders that we can score. Um, PE is is still pretty high. It's twenty three point nine five, but it is the lowest in the last six halves. So we do score it for that. Um, so it is a it is still a reasonably highly priced company. The good thing about Telstra is it's throwing off so much uh, operating cash flow that. Uh, 
Uh, we can score it on a prop calf basis. Uh, it's it's a reasonably recent three-point trend line upturn, so we score it for that. Just misses scoring for consistently increasing equity. There was one half when um, it dropped backwards slightly, so we can't give it a score for that. But all in all, quality score of 10.5 out of 16, or 66%, and a QAV score of 0.1. So anybody who wants a, a large cap blue chip uh, type of stock, this might be the time to buy it. So, But have a look and do your own research. Mm, thank you, Tony. You know, my I've told you these stories before, but when I was in my Microsoft days, I had a lot to do with Telstra. And uh, this is like Frank Blunt was the CEO and then Sol Trujillo and then Ziggy Swakowski. And like there would, it was just like horrible, horrible. The, just the the corporate attitude of the company then. Like I, like I took them, I remember taking all of the senior execs, like the general manager, I think they called them GMs of all the divisions, out to dinner in New Orleans, flew them all over to the US to meet with Bill Gates and all the execs, Frank Blunt and all of the guys, took all the guys out for dinner one night. And this is like 2000 and no, 1998, 1998. And they'd, they'd been rolling cable out around the country Bill Gates had made a big deal, you know, um, that they'd been rolling cable out um, a couple of years earlier. Did the joint venture uh, with them, but they weren't making it available. We had all of this cable in the ground, but they wouldn't make it. I mean, you could get it, but it was like for a thousand bucks a month if you wanted high bandwidth internet access. And I said to them, "Why? Uh, why? Well, when? No, when are you going to make this stuff available? The high bandwidth access to?" people and they said when we're forced to i said what do you mean they go well when we're forced to by the government then we'll do it and i was like well, why did you spend billions of dollars rolling out cable if you weren't going to make it available and they said it's easy it's to stop optus so if optus laid cable in the ground telstra laid cable in the ground it was mm. just to stop optus from getting a foothold i said so you're 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 spending billions of dollars of taxpayers' money because they hadn't been completely. I think they were like thirty percent or sixty percent floated at the time. You're spending taxpayers' money to stop Australians from getting access to high bandwidth internet access, and they were like, "Yep," <laughs> because that's they were defending their defending their moat basically. Mm. Instead of working out ways they could sell it for and what margin and what services they could offer. And if you were a privately owned company, fine, do whatever you want with your money. But when they were still mm. partly taxpayer owned, mm. to spend taxpayer money to stop taxpayers from getting access to internet <laughs> just drove me nuts. And it's their whole attitude. It was just like their level of arrogance out of all of the senior execs in these companies about how domineering they were and and they were terrified. You know, the longer I spent in there, I realized they had no idea what would happen to telephony revenues, and, and they were right to be terrified as well. Once people had access to VoIP, voice over IP, which is what we were all talking about back then, now we just call it FaceTime or Skype, but yep. it was voice yep. over IP, what that would happen to their revenue stream, which was telephone calls primarily. Yeah. They 
They knew it was going to white ant their own revenue, and they were determined to stop that from happening as long as possible, even though doing that meant stop stop Australians from getting access to, you know, bandwidth, and which is one of the reasons why Microsoft dumped Telstra as a partner and went with Packer um, for online um, services was because Telstra were just dragging their feet. They they were determined not to give Australians access to <laughs> fast internet and fast internet-enabled services until they absolutely had to. We could have been – Australia, one of the reasons Gates was excited in 95 – and and did the joint venture was Australia could have been the world leader in providing high internet access and services on top of that in the late 90s. But Telstra stopped us from being able to do that because they didn't know what it meant to their voice revenues and also their Foxtel revenues, right? They they had the Foxtel JV around about that time, didn't know what it meant for that. So them and Murdoch just, and you know, prevented it, made the MBN rollout really hard as well. All the politics involved in the early days of the MBN rollout and all of the FUD that was going on about, well, satellites versus cable and, you know, remember Turnbull, you know, and I'll never forgive Turnbull for this, saying, oh, cable, putting glass under the ground, that's going to be outdated in six months. There'll all be satellites, it'll all be like you know, wireless bullshit bull. And everyone in the industry knew it was bullshit, but just stopped us again. The second time around, we could have had, you know, NBN 10 years faster than we had it and all of the services that come from that. Just anywho, that's my rant over. Moving right along. Um, So you're not going to be putting Telstra into the dummy portfolio, I guess. Oh, I will buy it (laughs) if I have to buy it. Yeah, them and Atlas bloody what is apollo. it apollo 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 tourism <laughs> you know if the if they're in the portfolio i'll buy them i hate them yeah. <laughs> i'll do it with gritted teeth but i'll do it and that's the end of the free episode of qav for this week if you're a new listener i just should let you know how this works so we have a free episode every week runs for about half an hour we have a premium episode also every week it goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., Sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus. And then where are you? But while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G.
GHT. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.